With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There is nothing wrong with your audio. Do not attempt to adjust the sound. We are controlling the transmission. We control everything you hear. This is the Weirder Things Podcast. Hello weirdos, welcome to, this is part 2 of the Weirder Things podcast, uh, my interview with James Welsh. Uh, in this episode uh, we are going to be discussing the Rendlesham Forest case, uh, which is Britain's uh, most famous UFO case that happened in December 1980. Uh, we're going to be discussing that and some of the events surrounding that and some of the people involved. Um, so before we do that I just want to thank everybody who tuned in to episode 1, thanks for listening means a lot and um, please continue to listen Uh, this was, I said in the last episode a two part episode it was originally only meant to be one um, and it's now stretched out to three parts so there's actually going to be a, a, a small bonus episode uh, next week, which is a bit shorter than this one, um, but uh, it, that'll just kind of finish things off nicely. Um, so thanks for for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, I hope you enjoyed last week. I really hope you enjoy this week. It's quite interesting, um, and I'll see you or I'll speak to you again at the end of this episode. Um, so. Sit back, relax, enjoy uh, part two of my interview with James Welsh. Okay, um, so Roswell might be a good segue into and, uh, and what we're going to talk about now. <laughs> right, so um, you are currently um, part of a, what do you call it, a group? Um, party, a, a group of researchers who are looking into Rendlesham? Yeah, I mean... I'm, how would you frame uh, it? Uh, how would I frame this? Uh, I would frame it as I am an individual who is caught up in this... Uh, the investigation of a guy called Larry Warren. Um, right, so before we go into all this, right, um need to explain what Rendlesham is to yeah. anybody who doesn't know. So yeah. Rendlesham Forest um, is known as... Britain's Roswell. Um, so I'll 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 quickly explain to everybody what what it is. So in uh, nineteen eighty, um, uh, over the space of three nights in nineteen eighty, uh, December nineteen eighty, um, uh, a UFO allegedly landed in um near or around a US Air Force base in Suffolk in England. So that, that that's right so far, yeah. Yep. Yep. Um so 
this happened in um, December 1988. The US military uh, investigated it. There's a, a, a tape called the Halt Tape where um, a Colonel Hall um, took a team of uh, military police officers and other soldiers off base into the forest where they'd seen these lights um, and they, uh, essentially if you're listening to the tape you'll probably be able to get it on uh, YouTube. Um, you'll you'll hear what appears, they don't know what it is essentially uh, that they're seeing uh, and it's, it's known, they believe they've seen a UFO. Right, but that this is at the height of the Cold War, right? So, um, everybody's on edge, right? So they initially think it might be the Russians are up to something, and um, that's why they they kind of investigate it and stuff like that. Uh, and then when you listen to the tapes, it becomes clear that it's not the Russians, but they don't actually know what it is. Mm. Um, and uh, over the years, there's been loads of books written about it. Uh, loads of witnesses come forward saying they were there. They saw a UFO. Some even go as far as say they saw aliens, um, and people moving about inside the craft. Mm. Um, so if you don't know anything about it, that's kind of the, the, a, a quick rundown on the case. And mm. um, there's there's just so much information. It's it's Britain's Roswell. So there's just like so much information about the case out there. Yeah. However, um, there over the years there's been loads of arguments about the case. Who was involved? Who wasn't involved? People coming out saying they were there. Um, other people saying no, no, you, you that person wasn't there, or this person wasn't there. So um, it's a big mess. <laughs> it's it's a bit yeah, a big mess. It it kind of went away for a while, um, but very recently, what 2016, 15, 16? I you found yourself um, in the middle. I get caught up in a big um, controversy surrounding one of the um, wit- alleged witnesses alleged witness. yeah, uh, alleged. of uh, this case, a famous um, a famous self-proclaimed witness, self-proclaimed witness, would I call him a self-proclaimed witness? Aye, self-proclaimed whistleblowing eyewitness. Right. Yep. So in 1983, a guy called R. M. Wallace... Yep, his real name is Larry Warren, but he came forward under the name of Art Wallace yeah, originally um, uh, when he spoke to the News of the World. Yeah, when yep. he spoke to the News of the World in 1983, he said that he was part of a military group that um, went into the forest this one of the nights and, and seen um, this. He was part of the party that went into the woods to, to look for this UFO. Um, and there's always been kind of controversy surrounding his version of events and whether he was involved and stuff like that um, and all the books that I've, re- I've read anyway um, so if you want to go ahead and um, kind of talk a wee bit about what, what happened and what's going on just now about sure. this particular case without slandering anybody okay without actually slandering Harry this is going to be really difficult Michael I don't know if you've lumbered maybe here um, okay I'll, I'll take it further back then 2016, I'll actually take you back to 2015 and uh, I went down to Gary Heseltine's UFO Truth Conference down in Holmforth and the reason I went down there was because Stanton Friedman was on the bill headlining and I had previously went to see Stan uh, when he came to Stirling to do the Paranormal Conference but due to uh, a health scare Unfortunately, he had a no-fly policy at the time, so I was really looking forward to meeting him when he came to Scotland, and that didn't happen. And so I went down to Homeforth in September 2015 to see him. Where is Um Yorkshire? It's Yorkshire, and I would say Yorkshire. It's not far from Leeds. Sorry, I'm totally digressing. I'm pretty sure it's not far from Leeds city centre. Uh, I might be wrong on that, but it's a beautiful part of the world. It's very, uh, it's where they used to film Last of the Summer Wine. Oh, really? So it's like it's great biking country. It's really during the height of summer. If you've got a bike, that's where you want to be because the roads are just phenomenal for it. Um, Yeah, so I went down there to see Stanton Friedman, and as it just so happened that Larry Warren was also on the bill that that year. So I got to hear Larry, who was doing the compare, if you like, at that conference. Um, but within a couple of meeting, minutes of meeting Larry, 
Um, and once he found out that I was a huge Star Wars fan, he proceeded to tell me that he met Carrie Fisher one time in a bar in LA and that she proceeded to tell him that George Lucas's favourite book on UFOs just happened to be his book, which was left at Eastgate. That was written by... Both Larry Warren and Peter Robbins. So, um, so I was a bit starstruck, you know, obviously I've just met the guy and suddenly he's telling me that he's met Carrie Fisher and she's told him that George Lucas, the greatest director of all time, loves his well, book. Well, I, I might need to pull you up for that one. <laughs> Okay, big George, carry fault the guy. Oh, you can actually, episodes one, two, three were terrible. But, um, no, so as I say, I met Larry and he told me that he met Carrie Fisher. I thought, well, wow, that's that's pretty cool, that's awesome. And Larry, at the time on stage, was huff, huffing and puffing about Colonel Holt and how he wanted a, a chainsaw to set about him and all this carry on. It was all very humorous. Um, but Larry was covered in controversy at the time because there was this ongoing exchanges between him and a girl called Sasha Christie down south. Was this in 2015? Yep. Um, I don't think things were going as far back as that, but by the time it actually got into nine months later, in June 2016, both Larry Warren and Peter Robbins were scheduled to be the headline speakers at the Scottish UFO and Paranormal Conference. So, <clears throat> in the lead up to the conference, um, Larry Warren uh, issued threats on social media to a girl called, I think it was Kelly Marie, and generally to anyone that came near him or any of his family, he was going to jump off the stage and rip their windpipes out their throat. Like, firstly, why would anybody go near his, what did, did he mean go near his family? <laughs> It's just a general way of saying anybody asks me the wrong question that I don't want to answer. Right, okay. You know, uh, anything, any, you know, I'll happily bullshit everyone uh, to, to, you know, the ears fall off, but you dare ask me anything about my involvement or you know, something that doesn't sit right with me or doesn't sit right with you, then I'm going to shut you off and shut you down, basically. So, yeah, there was a lot of weird things. There was a weird vibe going around Larry Warren and... Um, in between 2015 and 2016. And as I say, by the time it came to the run-up to the Scottish Conference, he was issuing threats to members of the public that were planning on coming to the conference to hear him talk about Rendlesham. Right, so um, these people were going to come to the conference. They were going to... If there's, there's a Q&A scheduled, yes? I believe there was a Q&A scheduled, yep. Right, yep. okay. Uh, and he was basically saying, if MD comes to the conference and asks me the wrong questions... I'm, I'm not going to be too happy about it, basically. Aye, aye. But in a, a not nice way. Aye. So, I mean, even if he said it in jest, and, you know, it was just tough typing, as he likes to say, um, at the end of the day, it was still perceived as a threat towards the public on social media. And that is exactly the the attitude which Glasgow University took into consideration. So, with two weeks to go before the conference... Um, the organiser, Alison Dunlop, was sadly informed by Glasgow University that she could no longer hold the conference on their venue. So everything was in disarray because obviously all the tickets had been sold and all the speakers had been booked, hotels, you name it. You know, Everything was all scheduled to go ahead. Um, and now the entire conference was in jeopardy because of Larry Warren. Um, but of course, at the time, Sasha Christie and... You know, anyone in Sasha's camp were basically getting the blame uh, for Larry having to issue these threats to begin with. So Sasha is <clears throat> she um she she knew Larry, is that right? Sasha uh, was good enough to take Larry under his roof under roof. Right, okay. Um, and because he was going through a hard she, time, yeah. She was um she was into the subject yep. and she'd met this guy who was, you know, whistleblower in one of the biggest UFO cases. So she was like, ah, you can kind of come stay with me if you don't have yep. hard times. Right. right, okay, so she, right, okay. So she done him a favour, basically, and um, basically he crapped all over her. And um, from what I've heard um, from Sasha directly, uh, I've heard some of the shenanigans that went on while he stayed under a roof and basically... 
you know, uh, the, the general. It public. wasn't a, a a good house guest. Yeah, it wasn't his house. I mean, there's the there's the whistleblowing, uh, all alien action American hero that we know as Larry Warren, and then there's the real Larry Warren, um, who is just a completely different person altogether. Um, and far a far cry from the whistleblowing hero which the general public perceive him to be. So um, so there was all the controversy going on between Sasha and, and uh, Larry, and Sasha had quite a lot of things to say about him. But the propaganda from Larry and his camp and all his supporters was basically that Sasha was a nutcase and she was to be avoided and she was a woman scorned, etc., 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 um, so, Alison managed to get a second venue on the university premises uh, and managed to save the conference. But the security on the venue found out that originally it had been cancelled. Uh, but now that it was still going ahead, there was security concerns. So, they had to draft an extra security on the day for a UFO conference, which is just completely unheard of in case uh, Larry kicked off or anything else kicked off. So, Alison managed to save the conference. Um, Sasha, at the time, got the entire blame for the all the, the last-minute changes, when in reality, uh, everything fell solely on Larry Warren. But when he arrived in Glasgow in 2016, last year, um, within a couple of minutes of him arriving, I broached the subject of the, the Star Wars Episode 7 had just came out a few months. Um, well, it came out since I'd last spoke to him. Uh, so I asked him what his feelings were on the movie. So at this point, you don't... You're still... Still a, a modern supporter. Ah, yeah, you're st- yeah. I'm still, still, you know, held out for the guy. Yeah, I still had no, had no reason to disbelieve him. Um, but yeah, so I brought up the subject to the new movie. I asked him what he thought of it. And then suddenly he starts sprouting into this routine about one time he was in a bar in LA and he happened to meet Joe Bloggs. And Joe Bloggs told him that George Lucas's favourite book was Left at Eastgate, not Carrie Fisher. So the moment he said, the moment those words left his mouth, I was basically, I was, you know, floored completely. The pin dropped and I thought, this guy's... So it's all like a flaw in his story, basically. Basically, I thought you cannot meet the iconic Carrie Fisher, the iconic Princess Leia, and then mistake her for a random employee of Industrial Light Magic. That just does not happen. doesn't matter if you've got PSD or no, you will never, ever forget meeting Carrie Fisher. Do you know what I mean? There's just no... You can't. There's no way that would be embedded in your head forever. Um, So I knew that there was something going on. I knew the guy was a bit of a storyteller from that moment. Um, but yeah, after the conference took place, I had to go hunting for Larry Warren, and eventually I managed to catch up with him, um, hold up in a wee pub in the West End, and I had basically went there to try and collect him, to take him round to another venue which we had secured for after the conference, and basically all the conference scores, because they had all bought tickets to come see, well, to, to see the conference, but to hear Larry, obviously, as well, was part of that. And because they had all been deprived of that because of Larry's stupidity... Because at this point, everybody's still <clears throat> a Larry Warren supporter. Oh, this, he's yep. He'd done a video... Basically, he was reduced to doing a video response, which was played on stage that day. And then like the opportunity... Just uh, um, sorry, I can't be here. Kind yeah, of basically, uh, you know... Given the circumstances, I'm actually in Australia at the moment, yada, yada, yada. But after that, the, 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 we informed everybody, look, you know, you can get a chance to come round and meet Larry at this other venue. You can ask questions, get your books signed, get your photos taken with him, and, you know, do the whole author-reader thing going on. So that's basically where I meant to find him. And um, I was informed when I got to the pub by his, uh, his bodyguard, Tino, Try to stop me getting in the door. He had, he had a bodyguard. Uh, well, he uh, uh, wasn't a paid bodyguard, but uh, Tina right, McGarrow okay, was right, acting right. as doorman and security for him that day at the pub, and basically didn't want to let me into the pub to speak to him. Right, I can I can bleep this out, but what pub was it? It was uh, Old Snug. What's that? It's up near. It's up the West End, and it's just off one of the big main roads up beside the park. I'm not too sure exactly. Oh, right, okay. But it was just a wee, a wee old man's pub. Do you know what oh, I mean? Right, okay. Um. 
so yeah, so I went into the pub and says to him, I managed to get in, you know, I managed to brush Tino at the road and say, look, you know, I'm going in to have a word with this guy, you'll no stop me, I don't care how big you are. Um, so Tino let me in, I approached Larry there sitting at the back of the pub. So, quick question, right, he's in Glasgow, he came up to Glasgow, right, mm-hmm. to do the conference, he's been told that he can't go to the conference. Yep. Right. Um, had he already agreed to do, like, meet people afterwards? Well, that was the plan. I don't know if he personally agreed to, but the plan was right, right, okay. obviously either way. What was, why afterwards. was he in Glasgow in the first place? And did he? Would, surely he would have known before travelling to Glasgow. It sure, he was informed. Yeah, he was informed. But it was but there anyway. He decided to come up to Glasgow anyway because all his pals were coming up to Glasgow and he had a hotel room and right. Okay. So, I so it, was all, it was all kind of, of pre-booked. So he was coming yeah. up to like okay. So despite the fact he wasn't allowed to talk, he decided to come up and make the most of a free weekend, if you like. Right. No problem. Um, so as I say, the night before the conference, he told the Carrie Fisher story to me the second time, except it wasn't Carrie Fisher. So I went home that night, really, the, my world had collapsed, you know, I thought, this guy's no what he says he is, you know, there's, there's more to him. Um, and then obviously the night of the conference, when I managed to get a hold of him in the pub, and I says, come on, I says, there's 200 people at this other venue, I want to get you, you know, you sign their books and get your photos taken with them, do your whole author thing, you know what I mean? You sign, I mean, at the end of the day, any anybody that's ever written a book will tell you that there's nothing better than sitting at a table and signing copies of your book for people that are interested in reading it and buying it and want to meet you and they're interested in your work. That, you, it doesn't get any better than that. So, when I said to Larry, come on, we'll go and do this, and he says, no, nah, I'm, I'm done, man. And I says, what? And he says, no, nah, man. I'm done. So that was that. that see, after as soon as he said that to me, I was like, ah, "Well, I'm done with you." I thought, I thought if that's your attitude, then to hell with you. And I, I was like, "Right, okay." Well, I've came, I've asked, and you know, well, I'll see you later. And I'm at home, and I'm really, really bad mood. Um, and I just found it really, really odd that an author would not sit and enjoy meeting the public and people that are interested, and people that have travelled all the way from all over Europe to come and see them. So I found that really odd and I thought something did not sit right with him at all. Um, and then shortly after the conference, uh, I was showing uh, a photograph or a doctored photograph of Larry Warren with John Lennon, which Sasha Christie had uh, put on her blog, which was taken from Larry's Facebook page. So within a couple of days, I having a look at this photograph, it was pretty much established that Larry was not telling the truth about the photograph being taken on November the 29th, I think it was, 1980. The actual photo was taken on August the 31st, 1980, when John Lennon arrived in New York to record Walls and Bridges. So, obviously I knew that the whole Carrie Fisher gate thing going on, and now there was this thing going on with Larry Warren telling lies about this doctored photograph of John Lennon. But Sasha was also putting out information which showed that Larry Warren was involved in the sale of rock and roll memorabilia. And I started to look into some of the claims that she was making or some of the information. She wasn't putting out claims. She was putting out information. And I started following up on her, on her information. Right, so at this point, you're still... Are you still on the fence at this point? Or are you still... When are you at this point? At that time, I was highly suspicious that Larry was not telling the truth about um, his Rendlesham Forest incident. I just found him not to be trustworthy after him telling me the same story twice and it differed on both occasions. So I knew there was reason to doubt him for day one. Um, So, yeah, I started going into Sasha's claims and before long, I had established for myself that um, a shirt which he sold, he which he sold at auction some years back uh, for I think it was three and a half thousand pound. It came in a big glass frame with a plaque from May Pang saying that, that she gave this shirt to Larry as a present, and it used to belong to John Lennon. So um, who's May Pang again? She was John Lennon's assistant, and he basically. He was seen her at some point during his lifetime. They had their lost weekend. Oh, right, John, yeah. Lennon, John Lennon's infamous lost weekend. I believe it was uh, May Pang. 
Okay, where they okay, sort okay. of just had a big blowout, you know. Is, so. is that an exclusive for this podcast? Or is no, that no, not at all. Any Beatles fan will be able to tell you that, you know. Oh, right, um, okay. Thought I had an exclusive on my hands. <laughs> well, the exclusive is is that um, after I had seen this plaque from May Pang stating that she gave this to Larry Warren, I thought, well, now I've got a, a lead. So I'll just go and ask May Pang. So that's what I did. I asked her on social media. I love how you you just I'll just go and I'll just go and ask. Just May go on tangents. Well, she's I, there's a name. I'll go and follow that name up now. You know. So basically, uh, I did. I got in touch with her sister. Look, I'm having a look into this guy. I says, did, did you give him this shop? And she says, no, never. She says, I never gave him one item belonging to John Lennon. She says, but this isn't the first time that he's used my name to try and sell stuff. So, so she, she already knew. She had previous dealings with him because prior to that, he tried to sell a pair of sunglasses at Sotheby's. Right, okay. And uh, basically, had her signature against it. But one of her friends had seen the item up for sale, had a look at it, realised it wasn't her signature, and then contacted her. So May Pang actually had to write to the auction house and provide. Uh, samples of her own <coughs> handwriting to prove that this item was not her handwriting and the item was associated with Larry Warren. So she said that not only that, but um, the same um, the same item that which he tried to sell also turned up in Australia a few years later. So it, there was obviously a bit of history regarding several items which Mr Warren had tried to sell with May, May Pang's name attached to them. So that was shocking enough. But two items which Warren sold um, in 2011 happened to be a cowboy shirt and a pair of, a pair of sunglasses, which allegedly belonged to John Lennon. So he's a <coughs> so he's, so he's a, a John Lennon fan then? He's a, well, he claims to be a huge Beatles fan, but... Right, um, okay. But I, I couldn't, I, I wouldn't class it as that. I would say he, he profiteers off the Beatles. That would be a better way to put it. Uh, is it my understanding that he also just happens to live in uh, Liverpool? Yeah, yeah. The irony of it, yeah. So, I, yeah, it's quite sad. Um, but, yeah, uh, I looked into the, the sale of the cowboy shirt and uh, sunglasses, which he sold. And then I was actually able, this was through Sasha's blog that I learned about this. So I decided that um, I would look into this for myself. And at the time, I was trying to do so anonymously because all I was trying to do was find any wrongdoing which Larry Warren might be involved in. So at this point, you're not you're no to get anybody. You're, no, you're just kind of looking into... Just sheer curiosity. For yourself yeah. at this point because you you think that he may be a fraud at this point? Yeah. Right, okay. I mean, basically, I never mentioned, but when uh, the Scottish UFO conference took place, I was in the gifted uh, position to put Peter Robbins up for a couple of days as my house guest. So when Peter came to stay with me, um, we became very good friends, and I, I seen what Peter was like as a human being. And before he left here, he was adopted family, basically. And, um, and then when I started learning about all this... Uh, alleged wrongdoings by, by Larry Warren behind his back. I was really angry at the fact that Larry Warren would have the audacity to do something like that to Peter Robbins behind his back uh, and jeopardise not only Larry's career but Peter's as well by doing what he was doing. So I was really, really, really angry uh, at the fact that Larry Warren may be engaged in these kind of illegal activities and um, that's what prompted me to, to look into this um, because I felt if there was any wrongdoing, then Peter Robbins deserved to be made aware of that, um, so they could see Larry Warren for who he really was. Because um, like, um, <laughs> Peter uh, was his co-author for like thirty years or something. Well, they've years. known each other for th- about thirty odd yeah. years. Yeah. So. Um, obviously, the thing left Eastgate came out in ninety-five, ninety-six. I think it came out. But yeah, I mean, an incredibly long time. You know, twenty years uh, working together. It was a really big seller, as far as I know, as far as UFO books go. Uh, I mean, it stood the test of time, you know, it's still in, it was still in print until late last year. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, at the time, as I say, I, I started looking into it out of curiosity and just the fact that I felt that there was wrongdoing going on and it needed the public attention, if that was the case. So when I tracked down to these items, which Sasha Christie put up on her blog... So, before you go any further, so when you start doing this, is there any point where you're thinking, right, I'm looking into somebody here, right, who is a well-known figure in ufology, were you aware that you might end up finding something that could blow a massive hole in one of the UK's most well-known UFO cases? No. No. So, you you weren't setting out to make a name for yourself or anything like that, you were just, like, you thought there was something off here. Just following the evidence. Just following it. I mean, at the end of the day, I knew, obviously, that things weren't things didn't sit right with Larry Warren, um, and as I say, when I I found and out this is purely time, through your just interactions with him. Yeah, like you'll know some online person um, who's maybe read something in a book or a blog or any of that stuff. This is from an actual interaction face to face with aye, a person. Aye, and I've always spoke to him properly for five minutes each time and get two conflicting stories so as I say when I found out about the all through Sasha's uh, hard work then she put out the stuff uh, regarding the the sunglasses and the shirt uh, and the cowboy hat basically I tracked down I managed to track down the cowboy hat and the sunglasses to their current owner and you're doing all this kind of under the like on the, on like the sly, like you're not at the time, at the time yeah, you're keeping it under your hat. I didn't want my name involved, um, and I did, and I felt that any findings were going to be uh, published anonymously because basically I didn't want to get my name involved in this subject because it was the bizarre, you, you was knew who heated. he was and 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 like how well known he was. Like you, you don't want to be the guy who who. Brings that in because that's going to get a lot of attention, essentially. Mm. So uh, well, I I'd, I'd put it this way: I didn't expect. I, I knew there was wrongdoing going on, right? And then that was confirmed uh, when I tracked down to these items and I got the handwritten letters of provenance. But the thing about it was, is um, Larry Warren released his own handwriting to the public, and um, when he when he released his own handwriting, basically, I was able to take samples of all his handwriting and then compare it to these two Beatles letters of provenance. And once I did that, it was absolutely instantly established that Larry was obviously engaged in acts of fraud and had fabricated these two letters. Um, So it was obvious now that through uh, May Pang confirming that he was at it and then finding evidence on his own handwriting on his alleged Beatles letters by Charlie, allegedly written by Charlie Lennon. I knew that he was involved in fraud. So at the time, I I still had no idea. I knew he wasn't to be trusted at his word then. And I knew that his book, Left at Eastgate, deserved a proper combing through um, to to go through it with a fine-tooth comb, basically, because... Obviously, this man could not be trusted at his word when he was deliberately setting out to defraud people. And if he was willing to knock together a, a glass frame to put a shirt in with a wee etched plaque in order to try and make a few thousand pounds, what would he do in order to, to fake his Rendlesham uh, involvement? And it wasn't till late last year that I actually started reading Left Eastgate properly myself after becoming aware of all this uh, fraud that he was involved in and I read through it with a, as I say with a fine tooth comb and with the foreknowledge that he wasn't to be trusted at his word so going through Left at Eastgate I mean there's so many examples I can give you but one for example is that he says that it was bright at half past six in the morning and he couldn't sleep because the sun was so bright and then he leaves his dorm and goes out at half past seven and the sun had a camera effect on his face. Now I checked the uh, geodetic coordinates for Bentwaters and then I ran them through the NOAA uh, database and NOAA is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and 
thanks to the science of technology, they've got a wee satellite up in space that can tell you exactly when sunrise is going to occur at those geodetic coordinates. And it turns out that the sunrise, apparent sunrise, did not happen until quarter past eight that morning on the December the 29th, which is... Yeah, because it's dark in the winter. Yeah, it's, it's the UK, it's England, it's bloody dark, it's winter time, exactly. Um, but according to Larry and left at Eastgate, it was it was bright at half past six and the sun was up at half seven. I mean, I, I, I'm not... You know, I'm, as the host of this podcast, I need to remain impartial, but even I know... That it's it's dark, <laughs> dark at, at, at time. time. It's uh, you know who lives in the UK knows that it's dark at half past six in the morning in the UK in December. Aye. Uh. <laughs> so, uh, aye. So there was loads of these things like that in the book, which uh, which I could easily take apart uh, and have a look at and say, no, that didn't work, and then. There's another claim he makes about um, he's seen three deer jump over an Air Force base perimeter fence. So I thought I looked into that and I thought, okay, well, I'll have a look and see how high a deer can jump. And it turns out a deer, your average deer can't jump any further or higher than eight feet. And then I checked the minimum uh, minimum required fence for a, a US Air Force base. And the minimum required height is 14 feet. Is is that now or then? No, that's standard. That's standard. It's, it's for an, an a, for a, They're called deer fences. So uh, so they're, they're called deer fences. So deer can't jump over them. Yeah, basically. And mm. any, I mean, I've I've got loads of people, loads of people I know that work up north and stuff like that, and um, you know, work on farms and stuff, and they say that you know that's exactly why these fences are as tall as they are, it's because it's to stop livestock from getting over them. Uh, I mean, if I mean, if, if what Larry was saying was true about that one specific event where three deer are actually able to jump over that Air Force base perimeter fence, then the Air Force were really stupid when they put that fence up because if they'd only increased it by a, you know a few four, it was another six feet, they would never have the problem which faced them three hundred and sixty-five days a year of <coughs> aircraft trying to take off and deer jumping deer running over. Running. Yeah, that's not going to work. It's not going to happen. So. That's why there is a minimum requirement with these fences. It's to stop livestock and stuff like that strolling in front of a body A10 before it takes off, you know. Because the I, d- I don't know if this is um, this is correct, but Bentwaters is was Bentwaters the UK one or the US one? Because there's a UK and a US one next to each other. Aye. Um, so Bentwaters is that's the US one, right? Aye. And what's the UK one? Woodbridge. Woodbridge. Yeah. So RAF Woodbridge is the UK uh, Air Force Base and Bent Waters is the US base. And they're, they're in the same area and uh, they neighbour each other. Yep. Um, and that's where essentially... Did they, did they store nukes there or was there a claim they stored nukes there? The general consensus is that there were tactical nuclear weapons stored there. Because um, they had the aircraft that carried them, that's right. The A-10s were stored there, the, the um, depleted uranium. So it would stand to reason there. that if they stored the aircraft there um, that could carry them, then they would probably be there. Because that would have been a... Because of the position, it's right on the north, near the North Sea, mm-hmm. at the height of the Cold War, yep. um, that would have been a strategic... Um, point for them, so we work under the assumption that that was there was nuclear. Yeah, I'll, I'm always weaponry on uh, that base. I will. I think I will always put the the subject of whether or whether or not they had tactical nuclear weapons on that base in the grey basket, right, because okay. I've never seen anything to support it. No, no matter. Apparently, somebody brought it up in the House of Commons at one point, and it was admitted in the House of Commons that there were nukes on that base uh, against whatever convention it was uh, with NATO and all this carry on. Right, okay, that sounds like something that the Americans would do, though. They oh, would aye, store nuclear weapons but, I mean, on nuclear lands without telling. You think silos and stuff like that? Yeah, and there's the no silos on Bentwaters or Woodbridge. Yes, yeah, it's, it's just a bunch of. Um, concrete 
there's just a few Huts, there is a few bunkers where bunkers, it was a weapon yeah. storage area but yeah there is yeah because there's definitely a weapon storage area yeah. colonel Holt, he's been out before and said that um that it was depleted uranium shells that are kept there so i'm about don't quote me on that but i'm pretty sure that that's what he said before i don't think Holt's ever mentioned nukes um but he did say obviously that the objects that they seen over the forest fired beams of light into the weapon storage area but it doesn't say Holt says that yep so um you know as far as weapon storage area is concerned it's still i would say it's still the jury's out there as to what they contained right, i think okay. the whole nuclear thing um has been part of the legend which has been added on to uh, rendlesham right okay so that's just my take on it. Um, Steve LaPlume, who was actually stationed at that base, has told me otherwise. He says, look, don't kid yourself on, there was nukes on that base. See, as He a, served there, I, you know, but yeah. um, Steve LaPlume has basically uh, got the thumbs up, in my opinion, because the guy came forward recently and came out and spoke out against Larry and, uh, you know, the guy's the guy's good <coughs> conviction. Um, so I, will take, I would take what he says... Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, I, board, I would, but with a grain of salt, I would, know. I would assume that there would be something on there. Oh, because, I mean, it was like, a because of the, tactical because of the base. Ti- it was a tactical base at that yep. time. Um, mm-hmm. it would, it would definitely, it would stand to reason that um, there would be um, nuclear, mm-hmm. if not nuclear, whatever the the the, the next down version like the strongest weapons that they had at that time because mm-hmm. um, uh, did they have they wouldn't have had the stealth bomber at that point no that never came uh, no it never came about 8 years later yeah, 88 yeah. or yeah. something yeah. The, the F-111 was first yeah. announced I, I think I'm, I'm, I might be wrong on that but I'm pretty sure it was late yeah that, that I think it was I think they were testing it at that point uh, they were testing it in Scotland and at the time this was uh, that was getting flagged yeah, up cause it was getting, yeah it was getting yeah. seen in Scotland and people mm-hmm. were like we're seeing these triangles and they're like no yeah. no it's, no you know uh, and uh, the whole time it was this secret um, plane that they'd been using for years just goes yeah. to show you mm. so if they're, if they're doing that then if or not there was nuclear weapons there then uh, aye yeah. I mean, a lot of, I think, uh, I you know, a lot like of people probably slap me across the face for saying, how dare you say there wasn't any nukes there? And I'd be like, well, that's... I mean, as I say, I'm not a Bent Waters expert or anything or, uh, on the whole matter. I mean, I've not made it my, my life's mission to study every, you know, time somebody farts that's got anything to do with Bent Waters, basically. Right, okay. But... Because um, that's got its whole um, other it's group of people who are dedicated to that particular case, anyway. Yeah, I mean, you're, I mean, you're not really part of that. Aye, it is a huge case because obviously it happened, but well, I say mm-hmm. recently, but happened a lot more recently than Roswell, so yeah. there's more like witnesses that are alive today. Yep. But the trouble with it is it's so very convoluted, and there's been so many fallouts with everybody that was involved in it over the years that um, it is really, it's a total uh, minefield, basically, to try and navigate through. And that was another reason I didn't want to get myself involved in it all at the time because I thought this subject's just far too hot and too controversial. Yeah, because that, that case on its own, without what you were digging into, was already just a, a hot potato. Aye, aye. Uh. I mean, obviously, you, you, you know, there's so many players involved. You've got Colonel Hall and Jim Pennison, John Burroughs, uh, Adrian Vestanza, you know, so so many players involved over the three nights and so many, I wouldn't say so many conflicting testimonies, but um, Mr. Warren, basically, um, he came forward in 83 and said that... It was a, you said it earlier, it was a News of the World. Um, uh, well, I, he featured in News of the World at the time. That was uh, that as Art page. Wallace. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, um, Any idea where the name came from? I've no idea. He says it was the name given to him by, uh, I think it was Larry Fossett or Barry Greenwood was the the, the, the person that came up with the author right, of that okay. name. But I don't know. I don't believe anything Larry says. I keep thinking the name Art Bell, which is the guy that's famous for doing ah, yeah, the does a radio show. Radio right. show. So, um, I saw Larry came forward in 93 and obviously he's, he claimed he claimed to have been involved in the third night of events. Uh, which is the same night of events which the Holt tape, the famous Holt tape surfaced from. So 
basically Larry said that he wasn't part of Holt's specific team out in the forest that night, but he was part of another team which were led out to a field which contained this ground fog, if you like, and uh, they all walked around the ground fog, f- fog and uh, there was a soldier crying for some reason because he didn't like ground fog or something, I'm not sure. This is all according to Larry Warren. Um, and this is after I'm seeing deer jump over a 14-foot fence, you know. So, um, yeah, so Larry says that he basically sees a, a light coming in from the North Sea and then it comes in over the field above them and then above this fog and then suddenly bursts into a big explosion of light. So is is that Larry's version? Because I have heard that version before, but yeah, I wasn't sure. Basically, it was, he he, he says that he was on guard mount. Oh, he was he was uh, guard duty. Guard duty, basically over the weapon storage area that night, and then his post was deactivated, and he was told to to get on a jeep and go into the woods with the rest of them. But at the end of the day, he says the base was on alert at the time. It was a height of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, there's no need to have this uh, weapon storage area. Yeah, and let's, that, let's uh, just the, leave that. Yeah, and hot, the, that potentially has maybe nuclear weapons. In it aye, and pot- we're going and into the potentially forest. they're waiting on Russian paratroopers coming in any yeah. second, according to Gary Heseltine. So yeah, so Russian paratroops are ready to infiltrate and sabotage the base at a moment's notice, and apparently they were to be expected. And Larry's trying to tell okay. us that, despite all this going on, that his post is deactivated because it's more important that they get a soldier out into the forest to have a look at some lights than it is for him to be guarded. So are they thinking that the, these lights could be potentially these Russian paratroopers? I don't know. Um, I, I mean, as far as I know... Because uh, if, if you're going to you know, secretly infiltrate a base, you're, you're going to have lights. Aye, exactly. So everybody can see you. Aye. Um, so yeah, I mean, um, as I say, this is the, the third night of events. This was the night that Colonel Holt goes into the woods and records his audio tape, and um, which Larry, you can find on YouTube. Yep. So Larry says that he's basically in this field nearby, when this basketball-sized orange light comes over the field over the fog, it explodes in light, and then suddenly there's this big. Uh, I'll just call it a, a machine, as he likes to call it. I, I like to call it was a, one of these conference callers machines. If you imagine a conference caller, but a big, massive, massive one, right, suddenly appears in the field. And apparently that when this explodes, it gives him eye burns, or optic burn exposure, as he likes to call it. And, um, Sorry, just say that again? Opti-ret burn exposure. He says he got op- op- optical retinal burns right, okay. and a, a exposure to his eyes as a result of this thing exploding in close range to him. Okay. Um, and he says that this was all established and everything. But when it actually came to reading Left at Eastgate and going through it and then actually getting to the appendix section of Larry's book and then I came to all his military records, I instantly recognised his handwriting because I had been involved in doing the handwriting analysis with the Beatles items that I'd got. So I was quite familiar with Larry's own handwriting by the time I came to looking at these documents, and when I did, I noticed that his military document regarding this these optical red burns he got that was totally fake, and they were all in his own handwriting. So I realised that obviously for an order, an order. So was the entire report handwritten, or was it typed with a signature? Uh, it was a, a I would say a, it was a printed document with handwriting on it. Yeah. So it was a handwritten. Um, report. Yeah. Okay. Aye. Um, and it was on all in his own handwriting. So basically, I, I came to conclude from that one document that if he had to fake his military, uh, his medical document about his eye burns, then obviously he never got eye burns, so they wouldn't have had to fake his document. And if he never got eye burns, it means he wasn't there. Which means that the whole story about him getting eye burns is just another tiny violin that he's pulled out to say look at me I'm a victim I've, I can prove that this happened because I've got eye burns and here's the document but it turned out it was it was a forgery so I mean again you hadn't set out to um, kind of 
take him out of the picture uh, or, or, or figure out that he wasn't involved. But there had been discussions from 83 onwards that Larry Warren may not have been yeah. involved in this case. Because mm-hmm. there was other people who were there who said that he wasn't present. Is that right? Yep. Oh, aye, it's From the very beginning. From the very beginning, people came forward right. and went, listen, I've no idea what he's talking <coughs> about because... But no one had, had, had made... Um, no one had looked in depth at any documents or anything like that he was producing now. No, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't know when exactly uh, Larry first produced these documents as evidence. Uh, I'd had so when did the book come out? As far as, uh, as, far as I'm aware, it was 95, 96. Right, okay. Might have been even 97 as far as so I'm aware. So, remember back to him, no one else had really figured this out. Well, at the end of the day, I mean, even in Left at Eastgate, he, he mentions the fact that um, it, it, when he talks about finding these records, he says he came across somewhere that was looking for his old uniforms. Right, and okay. he says, well, these were gold dust, he says, because these would finally prove that it was, it was there when it happened. He says, in his own words, he says, in the past, there have been my detractors that says I wasn't even there. This would shut them up for good. And he's talking that, about his, that's handy. And so he was talking about his his own records, saying this will shut up the detractors that say I wasn't there, and it turns out they're in his own handwriting. So you're like, right, well, you've actually debunked yourself. Right. Do you know what I mean? So could, in theory, could, I mean, you can really contact the US military and ask for somebody's records, can you? It's not as straightforward as that. Um, I think you need to get permission as well off the the individual. Right. Okay. So you um, couldn't. Or no, nobody who maybe wanted to, you know, say that he wasn't involved couldn't go to the military and ask for copies. There's, I think, a very, very limited in, as to the information that you can actually get. Uh, so yeah, um, I think they're really limited as to um, what an individual can get on another individual. Right, okay, so but you're relying on um, him producing you need the documents. I think you need to knock on right, okay. his door. So he, he couldn't like, produce his documents then, you couldn't, or nobody could go to the military and ask for a, a copy of those same forms, essentially. So yeah. there's no way, like... There's no way yeah, that yeah, I, yeah. anybody else could. So the only way we'd be able to do is, is look at like potentially look at like, handwriting or and, and stuff like that. Aye. Um, so, aye. Um, that was that was quite bizarre to see that. Um, so obviously I recognised his his handwriting and his military documents, and then when I, the further I went through them, the um, the more I started to see things unravel regarding. He's alleged involvement. So apart from the the retinal eye retinal burns, what other um, kind of um, documents are produced at this point? Uh, his in training certificate, uh, which is his, his assignment to D flight document, and so D flight would have been the that would the have been like the shift rotation, shift rotation at that yep. base. Aye, and uh, again that that document is completely fabricated. And it clears him for duty from the fifteenth of December, but it's all it's all in his own handwriting. Because there is other, um, I mean, this isn't you or uh, this is another. This is the actual people involved in um, the case at Rendlesham. Um, I think it's a book by Georgia Bruni. Um, you can't tell the people in that book. Um, they talk about how Larry Warren. There's documents. Saying that Larry Warren was actually in Germany at the time, is that right? Uh, yeah, she. So at the she time, he's always on, on leave or he's on another base in Germany or some. I can't remember exactly. Exactly. Um, that's, that's what you. It's but he's either on leave. He's in. He's supposed to be in Germany. He's anyway. Supposed to be in Germany the night before uh, his involvement. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, going back to that book, which was early noughties, probably. Um, they claim to have evidence saying that he wasn't even. So there's already people that are saying that he wasn't there. Aye. Essentially, so that's what he's talking about when he produces his documents. I think so. I think that's basically what he's alluding to is the fact that people have had a go in the past, and he's saying no, this will finally shut everybody up and prove once and for all that I was involved. And obviously, he's elaborated now, saying that he's now a victim of seeing this UFO because he he got eye burns. And not only that, he suffers from PTSD, 
as a result of his encounter as an ice trauma that he's had. Uh, but we found out that obviously he doesn't have PTSD and he doesn't have retinal eye burns either. Um, basically, he made the whole thing up. So how, how did you find out he doesn't have PTSD? Um, through Sasha Christie, she, um, when he stayed with her, um, she was trying to help him out with regards to trying to help him get benefits sorted out or something. And uh, when it came down to like marking down uh, disabilities or anything on the form, uh, he never marked it down in the form, so he never ever claimed for it, or never ever claimed to have had it officially. No one tells could the UFO that potential? Be, I mean, if I'm trying to claim um, benefits, right, and I'm having to write down what's wrong with me, um, you're going to assume there's going to be further questions, right? So when someone says, right, you've got PTSD, why have you got PTSD? Uh, I mean, you're not going to turn around and say, well, <laughs> a, burnt, a UFO burnt my eyes, uh, uh, you know, 25, <laughs> 30 years ago. When you when you think about it like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know. Well, again, um, that was that was for what I found for the medical doctor. Uh, the medical certificate was the fact that it was fabricated. Uh, the big E on there's uh, signed by Doctor Eccles, and the big E on the Doctor Eccles actually matches the E, which is on which he wrote in his mum's uh, Warren Elizabeth Elizabeth Warren his mum's name basically. I think it's her middle name. There's an e, it starts with an E. Yeah, because again in that book that I, when you mentioned his mum, back in the the book that I read them. Um, there's, there's a reference to a phone call to his mum back home, and his, his mum essentially came out and says, "No, either that phone call never happened, or he never mentioned it." Right. Okay, I'm not too aware I, of that. I can't really remember either. But there, there's, there's. I made some inquiries myself regarding that alleged phone call that he made. I tells everybody he made, uh, and it just so happens that my uncle's a former BT disclosure manager. Right, what's always that? Um, basically, he used to have to go to court and produce documents and stuff like that with regards to phone taps. And right, stuff. so if somebody wanted phone records or like police or whatever, would want, yep, right. he was the go-to man. He sorted it all out. So when I mentioned the fact that Larry Warren claimed to have made a reverse charge phone call from a phone box and was put through to a local operator, and then a local operator put him through to an international operator, and the international operator put him through to a New York-based operator. So is that how that works then? Well, well this is 1980. This is how Larry so tells yeah, us yeah. how it worked. Yeah. yeah okay. So he says he was put through uh, the local operator to the international operator, back through to a local operator in New York, before his mum could answer the call. Right, so he's been right, placed okay, through that's three that's operators. Right, okay. Right. I, I can't, you know. Yep, so basically he gets through to his mum, says, Hi mum, UFO landed in the base, and then the phone goes dead. Right, okay. And he's like, mum, mum, you know, and then he realises there's nobody there. This is what he's telling everyone. So he decides to phone back the operator and goes, eh, hello, I think I was just cut off. And the operator just happens to know that it's him that's calling back, even though it's a totally different operator. And she says, oh, you're calling for the base? Hi, I'm calling. Oh, the base cut you off. And that was that, and she hung up. Wait, is, is he on the, the actual base? No, uh, allegedly he was using a public telephone co- box off the base. Right, okay. But my uncle told me that it would have been impossible for BT to um, collect the cost of that phone call if it had been placed through three different operators. Okay. Because it would now make that call impossible for BT to reciprocate the call and the cost of that call. So it would need to be put through directly. If he found right, his okay. mum, it would be right, a quick okay. call to that number. Mm-hmm. And it would have been put through directly. So it would have been BT who dealt with that start to finish? BT at the time, yep, for okay. start to finish. And uh, my uncle said it was, a, it was an impossibility. The phone call never took place the way it is described by Larry Warren. Because BT could not reciprocate the cost of that call. Right, okay. It would have had to been too many people involved and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Um, you know, if he just said he'd phoned the operator, gave her the number, and he'd been put through, and then was cut off, fair enough. That that was illogical. That's how it would have happened. But instead, we get this big story about, oh, he's been cut off, and then the operator just happens to know that it was him calling for that. And she knew the geographical location of that phone box and its proximity to the base, and... 
you know, how's this operator going to have all this information when she's just picking a phone up? You right, know? okay. So that was that was all proven to be uh, a lot of nonsense. Even uh, the letter which Larry says that he wrote to his mother after making a phone call, that also happens to be uh, highly controversial because the envelope itself in which the letter was posted has the ink overlapping the postmark. Right, so he says that um, after they got cut off, um, the phone got cut off, he decided to then instead write a letter. Because remember this is 1980, so that's what people did back then. Um, So he's decided that he's going to write a letter. Um, Okay, then what? So then what happened? So the letter, I mean, he likes to present the letter as, you know, this this is a letter that I wrote to my mum to tell her about the UFO events and it predates the whole memo by three days or whatever. But in reality, um, the details which Larry Warren provides in that letter is basically mirrors what Colonel Holt put out in the Holt memo. So it is my working theory that Warren never produced this letter as evidence until after the Holt memo came out. And what he's done is he's taken all the details from the Holt memo and then included them in his letter. And he's fabricated the postmark on it. And what he's done is when he's got his envelope, he's put the stamps on it and then he stamped it. And then he wrote the address on it. And that is why the address, the ink overlaps the postmark, which would make it impossible because you can't, write an address on an envelope after it's been marked as posted. I mean, because there's also a theory that um, Larry Warren um, heard about all of the stuff that was happening on base, because obviously this, what was happening was generally freaking out some people who were working on the base, they were dealing with it. Mm-hmm. You know, tensions are already quite high. Um, we could be getting nuked at any moment by the Russians. Um so, you know, tensions are already high. People are a wee bit freaked out about it. They're, they're talking about it on the base. Um, there's a theory that he's just overheard yep. um, what, what's been happening and inserted himself into it. Yeah. Um, and that's that's a theory that goes uh, into, you know, other books and stuff. Like yeah, that. basically that is the, the general consensus that he was picking up pieces of story from other people on the base and then started to construct his own. Yeah, and then uh, in 1983, um, he came out and you know said, this is what, what... So he basically heard the story and then um, blew the whistle on the story, even though potentially he was never even involved. Yeah. Right, okay. That's exactly how it went down. Um, obviously, around about 1983, when it started to get really popular, the fact that News of the World came out and... Uh, at the time, obviously, 1983, it was a huge headline to go out saying, look, UFOs are real, and that's, you know, well, not UFOs are real, but UFOs land in Suffolk, and that's official, you know, here's an official yeah, yeah, memo yeah, from... Because, yeah. again, we never mentioned, but um, Colonel Holt, um, when investigating, they wrote an official memo um, saying they investigated these weird lights, and that was enough Um because this was probably the first time, other than Roswell, probably, well, there could have been other cases mm-hmm. elsewhere in the world, or, you know, that have never been uncovered, but it was kind of the, the the one that, well, he the whistle got blown on, there's a memo saying that the US military investigated a UFO, and that was, at that time, that was, other than Roswell, um, that was the first time that was any kind of, you know, this could be real. Ah, kind of big thing. news, because it yeah. was, it was, uh, you know, it was happening at the time, basically, or, well, it was recent events. So, we are going to finish that up there. Um, that was part two uh, of my conversation um, with James Welsh. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found it interesting. Um, if you didn't know anything about the Rendlesham Forest case uh, I hope you know a little bit about it now and you can go away and, and there's just so many books and uh, websites and uh, all that kind of stuff documentaries, films about the, this case um, so there'll be loads of stuff on YouTube uh, the the Charles Holt um, recordings they're on YouTube 
Um, you can listen to them. I highly recommend if you've never heard them to do that. Um, so yeah, I hope you've it's enlightened you slightly and you know something that you didn't know before. Um, so next week we will be back for a shorter episode just to finish things off with this story. Um, and again, thanks for listening. Um, and you can follow us at Weirder Podcast on Twitter or the Weirder Things on Facebook or Weirder Things Podcast on Facebook, I think it is. Uh, we're on there, you'll find us. Um, I think there's only one podcast called Weirder Things Podcast, so we shouldn't be that hard to find. Um, so again, thanks for listening. I will speak to you all next week. Goodbye.